Good morning. It's good to see you. I was at an airport this week. There were lots of people and there were lots of shops. And some of those shops seemed to have a powerful magnetic attraction to the men who were in the airport. And some only seemed to have that magnetic attraction to the women. Dan from our travelling group went straight to Dixon's. He could barely get through the uh, security before he was straight over there to join a mostly male crowd milling around looking at all the technology uh, that was on offer. Accessorise, on the other hand, was mostly populated uh, with women and any men in there were clearly accessories themselves. (laughs) To say... (laughs) That looks wonderful on you. The Kath Kidston stall was 100% female. The winner sports car um, stall probably had similar stats the other way. Even the companies with uh, products uh, for both genders still tried to separate things. There were different types of cosmetics in Boots. There were different types of magazines in Smith's. There were fragrances for him and for her in the duty-free. And for now, the toilets reflected a state of affairs that was immediately apparent to anyone trying to make money there, that men and women are different. And by saying that, I have walked into a storm. There are two prevailing winds blowing powerfully in our culture at the moment. The first has been around a very long time, and it is that women face huge injustices in many areas of life. It feels like a struggle to succeed or just to move forward in a way that it isn't always for men in our culture. The other seems a little newer, and it is a response to that, uh, those injustices, and it suggests that any attempt to differentiate between men and women is seen as symptomatic of uh, this wrong behaviour and should therefore be silenced. And within that, there is our culture's belief in self-definition. That even if science says your chromosomes are XX or XY, your feelings or your desires are the ultimate guide to who you really are. No one else can tell you who you are or what you should do. How can we navigate our way through a storm this big and powerful. Well, we need a map and a compass to show us where we are and where we need to go. And for Christians, the Bible does this for us. We're going to look at a passage from the Bible today which talks about there being differences between men and women. It's a complicated section that would need careful explanation even if we weren't living at a time of gender confusion. If you've ever looked at a particularly strange-looking map and thought, I'm not quite sure what that's showing me, you'll know the feeling of what we might first experience when we read this. But if the terrain is complicated, the map needs to be as well, so that we can work out how to make our way through it. And so I'm going to look through this passage, and I'm going to take the opportunity in the midst of this uh, to teach on what we at King's believe about gender, and how that impacts our practices in terms of church leadership. And we've put together a document which explains this in more detail, and that will be published in the news email this Tuesday. And I'd really encourage you, I'm going to 
give a, an overview. The document gives more detail. I'm sure that some of you will still have more questions after that. And so what we'd love you to do is spend some time reading the document and then maybe get in touch. Uh, there's a, an appendix full of resources, a whole page of resources that I would recommend as helpful for helping us to understand this. And so you may want to engage with some of those for a while and have a look at some of those as well. And then, of course, come and talk with us if you want to have this uh, out a little bit further. So let's start with what we believe about the Bible. The Bible is God's perfect word to all people. We trust it, and we try to follow it in all that it tells us to do, including trying to build kings on the principles we see in the New Testament for church life. This can bring us into conflict with the world around us, and what we're looking at today is one of those areas. We are going to be going against both prevailing winds. Now, as we do that, some people will think, no, no, you're entirely with that first prevailing wind. Some people might think, actually, it sounds like you're entirely with the second one. No, we're going against both of them. Because the Bible is God's truth, it demands our best efforts to understand what it's saying and what it isn't saying. And so we study it carefully, we get help from experts, and we endeavour to come to trustworthy conclusions. This is especially important when the topics that we're looking at are particularly emotive, as they are today. And so I'd love it if you would just pray with me now that I'd speak well, and that you would hear well, and that everyone here would hear what God is saying to us today. Lord, we we love you, and we love your word. Many of us uh, have known you and known your word for years, and we trust you, and we want to follow you. Sometimes that's complicated, and some of the stuff we're looking at today is definitely complicated. Lord, I pray you'd help me speak well as I ought and represent you rightly. I pray for each of us that we'd hear really well. Lord, whether we're coming from a place of real confusion on this or absolute certainty, a place of difficulty and and hurt, or a place of confidence, or a place of complete confusion as to why any of this would be important, Lord, would you speak to us right now, I pray, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Amen. So here we go. We're going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 15. Paul says, I desire then in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what's proper for women who profess godliness With good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather, she's to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self control. So there are three sections here that we are going to go through. Outward appearances and inner attitudes, one. Men praying. Outward appearances and inner attitudes, two. Women's fashion choices. And then thirdly, who gets to lead a church and how and why. We're going to go through the first two pretty quickly because you want to hear about the third one and it needs more explanation. 
Firstly, though, Paul talks about men praying. Prayer was part of the church's public gatherings. And so that's what Paul is talking about. And he wants men to lift their hands as they pray, raising them towards the God who hears and answers our prayers. But what really matters to Paul is what's going on in their hearts as they pray. Are they free from anger and quarrels? Are they peaceable or are they always in conflict with others? And that, Paul says, is what I really want to have happening. Jesus taught the same thing when he said that we should fix any disagreement we have with someone before going to worship God in Matthew 5. Now we know from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 5, that Paul wanted women to pray too. But here he's focusing on the tendency of some of the men, mainly particularly in that particular church, to make a show of religion whilst really being hard-hearted towards the others around them. Paul's not having that. Second point, he goes on to talk about women's fashion choices. And the same principle is at work here, which is why he links the two phrases. He says, likewise also, says, appearance comes from what's going on inside. That's true for how men pray, and he's saying it's true for how the women dress. The outside should reflect the inside. And there's a choice here, he suggests. You can dress to make yourself impressive, or you can live to make God impressive. Roman women would uh, braid their hair and build it up into huge piles and fix it and highlight it with gold and pearls and other precious metals and jewels and all sorts of things If you've got a a hairstyle that's really uh, attracting attention, you need an outfit that matches that um, attention-grabbing style. And that's going to cost you a lot of money. And so Paul says what they're doing is they're spending all their money and all all their effort and all their creativity on how they look, not who they are. And that's why Paul mentions respectable clothing as the Christian alternative only really briefly. He instead focuses on the character qualities that he believes women who love Jesus will exemplify. Modesty or humility, self-control, godliness, good works. These, Paul says, are what make you really beautiful. These are what you want to spend your time on. And living this way frees you from the tyranny of fitting a standard of physical beauty and chasing after the riches needed to attempt to achieve it. In both these instances, the actions represent what really matters. You can pray with your hands in your pockets if you're at peace with those around you. You can plait your hair and wear jewellery if you focus people's attention on God's goodness rather than yourself. And in both these instances, speaking to both men and women, the qualities Paul mentions will only develop in us as we rely on the Holy Spirit, God himself, at work in us. And Paul says God is eager to do that. We've mentioned hairstyles, but now let's get on to the really hair-raising stuff. Who gets to lead a church? How and why? Paul says that he wants women to learn and not to cause arguments, which is what he's just said about the men as well. He also doesn't want them to take a position of senior authority in the church, and he especially mentions teaching in that context. And he makes his case with two pieces of evidence from creation in Genesis. And then finally, he says something about childbearing that at first glance looks like nothing else that he ever said. And that's the last thing that we'll look at in quite a while. 
When we're working hard to understand the Bible, we need to start with the immediate context of what is meant or what was happening when that particular passage was being written. And we need to think, what is this applying to and what isn't it? So Paul is talking about the local church gathered to worship. He talks about praying together and he talks about receiving teaching. Those are the kind of things that we do when we gather for a public service like we are right now. He's not talking about all of public life. In the particular church that he's thinking of, that he's writing to Timothy about, they were under assault from false teachers. People who were saying things about Jesus and Christianity uh, which weren't true. And these false teachers had been particularly effective in persuading some of the women in the church to believe them. And Timothy was there representing Paul to sort this out and to make sure that the leaders of the church weren't going to make the same mistakes but would instead teach what was true. And that's why the very next thing Paul talks about after what we've read today, chapter 3, is about church leadership. Dan spoke about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, and if you weren't there, you can listen to it online. And also, in this document that's coming out on Tuesday, there's a lot more about this and what it looks like. Just to summarise, though, we call the senior leaders of kings elders, because this is the most commonly used term in the New Testament for those who lead local churches. We're aware it's not the most commonly used term in culture to talk about this, but it's what the Bible says, and so it's what we use. And when we look at all the passages in the New Testament that talk about church leaders, we can build up a picture of who they are and what they're meant to do. And so at this point, we're zooming out from the immediate context of Paul's letter to Timothy, talking about Ephesus and that church, to what all of the New Testament says about church leadership. Both Paul and elsewhere Peter refer to leaders as shepherds. And they're using the well-known Old Testament language for leadership, which implied care and direction And protection. Shepherds should provide those uh, for those they've been given responsibility for. And the Latin word for shepherd is pastor. And that's why pastor often gets used to describe church leaders. Another word used in the New Testament with a similar theme is overseer. Now this might sound uh, to us uh, like it's talking about a supervisor or something like that. uh, But the original Greek has more of the sense of this being a watchman. And again, there's that idea of protection. And in fact, protection and care are seen consistently through all the New Testament passages about leaders. They are instructed to guard the members of the church from false doctrines and from wasteful or destructive living. They are to keep them safe on their journey to God. The New Testament's clear that elders aren't the only people in churches with leadership responsibilities that there should be authority delegated and lots of people uh, taking up their roles. But ultimately, elders are the ones who direct the affairs of the church. They have governmental authority over the church. And because of this, elders will give an account to God when they come before him at the end of their lives for the church. The Bible tells us a lot about the character qualities required of any elder, but our focus today is going to be on something else that's required of them, that they be men. Eldership is not a role that any man can do, but it is a role that only a man can do. Hence Paul's distinction between men and women in our passage today. Why is this? Because I know this will be troubling some of you, and maybe even causing some of you to have fears about the church, or even actually maybe fears about yourself. 
I want to start by demolishing six false assumptions that may come to our minds when we're thinking about this and hearing this. Firstly, and most importantly, this is not a question of who is better than whom. That is not what is up for discussion here or in the Bible at all. In both creation and salvation, God treats men and women exactly the same, and they are shown as having exactly the same value in his eyes. We are all made by the one God in his likeness. Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then we are all saved. We are all saved from our sins by the death and resurrection of Jesus. Galatians 3, 28. Paul says... There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are all saved the same way, Paul says. You all needed the same salvation, you're all given the same salvation. So this isn't a question of who is better than whom. Secondly, it's not because the writers of the New Testament were blinded by their culture's sexism. Unlike many other Jewish teachers, Jesus taught women. He had good friendships with them. He used them as positive examples about uh, uh, positive examples in his teaching, and he declared their spiritual equality with men. The writers of the Gospels also show us that women supported his mission with finance and hospitality. They were part of the community that Jesus was building. It was almost only women who stayed faithful to him when he was being crucified. And they believed that he had been risen from the dead before his male followers did. Women were recorded as being the first witnesses of the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus, even though at that time the the testimony of a woman by herself was not accepted in the law courts. But they were those to whom Jesus first revealed himself as alive again from the grave. Thirdly, it's not because Paul disliked women. His letters tell us that Paul was friends with and worked alongside many women. Fourthly, it's not because women weren't educated when the New Testament was written. Many of them were, and anyway, the Bible never makes a good education the qualification for leadership in the church. Fifthly, it's not because women were not allowed to do anything in the New Testament churches. The power of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts were given to all. So women could pray and prophesy in public along with all the other supernatural public activities that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 12. There were plenty of uh, practical areas of church life that we're told that women were involved with too. Moreover, early church history shows us that women were particularly attracted to Christianity because it recognised their dignity as fully equal with men. It said things that were true about them that no one else was saying at the time. And there's a strong argument that the Western concept of equality comes to us from Christianity. And research into cultures reached with the gospel more recently shows us that this pattern continues even today. The sixth false assumption. Submission is not a defeat. In our culture, submission is a word with almost entirely negative connotations. The only people who submit are those who have been conquered one way or another, and it's never good news for them that they have to, and what follows from that. That is not 
what the Bible says. The Bible says something radically different. Submission is the voluntary yielding of authority to another. All Christians are called to submit to each other and to God. Ephesians 5.21 tells us that. And this is part of a lifestyle of humble service that all Christians are to live. And not only, and you think, well, okay, that's great. Why are they doing that? Not only because it's good, but because it is an imitation of Jesus. And so when Paul says to the women that they should learn with all submissiveness, he is instructing them to be Christ-like. And nothing less than that. Jesus submitted to the Father. And Paul celebrates this in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11. And when we think about that, and we think about Jesus on earth, and how he followed the Father's will in all of that, we see that he was not coerced into submitting to the Father. He delighted to do so. He didn't become less divine by doing this. He did not give up his intelligence by submitting, but used it fully to achieve God's will for his life. Submission didn't ruin his life. He was vindicated and glorified because of it. And to demonstrate this is a great privilege. So that's a lot about what's not going on. What is going on? I want to show you very briefly what some of the Bible says about men and women. And that should help us understand why the New Testament clearly assigns the role of eldership to certain men only. And this will help us see why Paul talks to Timothy about Adam and Eve. He's making what's known as an argument from creation. He's saying, this is how God made us. And so this means it's applicable for all of us at all times. There are some instances where Paul's saying something that's just for that moment or just for that situation. But when he's talking from Genesis, he's talking about something that God established from the beginning. Its application will almost certainly look different in different cultures, but the principle is for all people in all cultures. Not only does Paul do this, but Jesus does this as well. In Matthew 19, he says, to, he says Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So, what do these creation accounts tell us? You don't have to believe that Genesis shows us exactly how the world was made to believe that it teaches us why it was made and what this means. It was written so that we could understand who God is and who we are, who he has made us to be. And in Genesis 1, we see a sequence of related pairs, and they are the structure uh, of the creation account. There is heaven and earth, sun and moon, land and sea, and so on. And this sequence of pairs comes to a climax with the final pair to be described, man and woman. Humanity is distinct from all the rest of creation in that we alone are made in the likeness of God. And we alone are given the rest of creation as a gift from God for us. So there's far more that unites us than divides us. Men and women, we are so much more like each other than we are like anything else on earth. It's no coincidence that there were only people in the airport. Because we're unique in that way, made by God in his image. But there are also differences. Our biology displays this theological truth. 
We are the same and yet different. In Timothy Keller's phrase, we are equal but not equivalent. There can therefore be no sense of superiority or inferiority between Christian men and women because the Bible teaches us that we were made different for each other. We were made, we were meant to fit together and we literally cannot live without each other. You would not exist were it not for a man and a woman. And that is the way of all of us and that is the way God made it to be. We were also made different for God's sake. Both man and woman are made in God's image and we can only comprehend this image fully by rejoicing in what both maleness and femaleness tell us about God. So if you only look to men to understand who God is and what he's like, you will miss a whole, a- whole aspects of his character because are, they are shown more clearly and more consistently in women. Now the devil hates anything that shows the greatness of God. He hates things that display the goodness of God and gender is one of those things. And so it's no surprise that he works to destroy the good that gender should do for us and for God. And tragically, We often cooperate with him. Men asserting themselves through their greater physical strength and social power to the hurt and denigration of women. Women fighting back through whatever opportunities they have to do so. Genesis 3 tells us that this battle of the sexes is a direct result of sin, a rejection of God and his ways. And so behaviours that demean the other gender from mockery to abuse to institutional bias are completely ungodly. But the way to correct the misuse of a good thing is not to abandon it, but to redeem it. Knives can be used for violence, but this doesn't mean that we should throw them all away or blunt all of them. We want them to be in the hands of doctors performing life-saving surgery and cooks preparing life-giving food. So we have to carefully work out how to live the fullness of life that God intended for us so that our gender differences are celebrated as good gifts from God that glorify him and bless us. The sociological changes of the past century have given women in particular new and more opportunities. And this is an opportunity, this encourages us to affirm the Bible's teaching of men and women as being equal in dignity as God's image bearers. Which is brilliant. But what we risk losing amidst this is the fact that men and women do have some vital differences which should be celebrated. And which need to be celebrated for the good of all of us. Now there are two areas in which the Bible assigns different roles to men and women because of their gender, marriage and church leadership. And these two areas are profoundly related to each other because the husband's role as head of the household is equated with that of a church elder. So in Ephesians 5, we're told that marriage is ultimately a picture of Christ's love for the church. And marriage should demonstrate to the world how Jesus treats the church and how the church responds to him. That's actually its point. Within a marriage, the role of illustrating Christ is given to the husband 
and the role of illustrating the church is given to the wife. And this interplay between a husband and wife is not meant to be how all men and all women relate to each other, but it is roles that a man and a woman take on when they commit to each other in marriage. And when Jesus returns, marriage will have served its purpose. We will see completely how Jesus reacts uh, to his church and experience that fully because he will be entirely with us. And so those roles will have they will have uh, had their time. They will have served their purpose. And they'll be at an end. A Christian husband and wife need to work out what the roles they've been given look like where they live. The one other place where certain men have a different role is in the church, which is called the household of God. So Paul equates the church and marriage in this way. Most um, early Christian communities, they didn't have church buildings like this. Uh, They met in private homes. And um, so household was obviously where they met. It was a good description of where they met. But more importantly, it was a description of how they were to relate to each other. The familial nature of their relationships. This wasn't, uh, we're all employees and so we all kind of have to be in the same place. No, we are family who love each other and work these things out together. Using this image of a household... Elders are called to take the role of the head of the household. And this is why elders are men and usually husbands and fathers because they've proved their trustworthiness for the role in the corresponding area. So this teaching of equal but not equivalent is known as complementarianism. And for us at King's, this means, firstly, that all women and all men are equal in value in God's eyes And ours. Secondly, that gender is a God given blessing which glorifies God when it is recognized and respected. Thirdly, within marriage and church leadership, there are distinct roles for men and women to play. And so, fourthly, eldership in the church is equated with the role of the husband in the family, and so only men should be appointed as elders. Currently, Kings has three elders uh, myself. Dan and Matthew, who leads our team. When we're doing our job well, people in the church feel secure, they feel purposeful, and they feel released to serve as God has gifted them. Some of the ways in which that works itself out at King's is that very soon we're going to be launching uh, or inviting applications for our next intake of our leadership training program, New Ground Academy. We've had over 50 people uh, through this already in the past couple of years, and we've got a 50-50 split between men and women on that, and we want that to continue uh, to be the case. Our midweek small groups, which will be starting back up again in a couple of weeks' time, are usually led by men and women together, either in a pair, uh, who may or may not be married, or in a three. We try to have both men and women serving in all areas of church life, and any ministry or serving team can be led by a man or a woman. We expect, as we had this morning, spiritual gifts to be received and used by women and men. And we, as elders, don't think that we've got it all together. We welcome input and ideas from everyone. Just to say, the New Testament doesn't give a job description for an elder's wife, and so we don't either. Of course, they have unique access and insight to their husband, but they don't have defined roles and responsibilities in the life of the church. How they serve the church is up to them 
and the gifting that God has given them. Now, because the New Testament consistently describes teaching as a key part of an elder's role, most of our Sunday preaching will be done by the elders. But also, men and women from within and out with kings uh, can be invited to speak by the elders, but they don't do so with the same authority to direct the affairs of the church as the elders have. And this takes us back to the passage we started with, if you remember, all the way back in 1 Timothy 2. Which may make you think, now hang on, didn't Paul say that women couldn't teach or have authority over men in the church? And if you've been in this church for many years, you might also want to add, hey, didn't you used to not allow women to preach on a Sunday because of that? Please explain what's going on. Well, glad you asked. (laughs) Our practice on this has changed. But we believe our principle hasn't. I want to explain that to you. We've always believed that the New Testament celebrates women explaining the gospel to people and prophesying that it encourages both men and women to be teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, Colossians 3, and expecting the Holy Spirit to give them utterances of wisdom, 1 Corinthians 12. Now, previously, we, de- we defined a sermon, a Sunday meeting, as different from those contributions which are open to all, because we wanted to do justice to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2. As we've continued to think this through, as we've been asked by people and the culture, are you sure that you've got this right? Um, We've been helped by recent scholarship to see what we feel, to get better clarity on what Paul is and isn't saying in this passage. He is saying that women should not teach the church in a manner that resembles an elder teaching. Let me explain why we're able to make a distinction there. A guy called John Dixon in a book called Hearing Her Voice shows that there are several uh, public speaking ministries mentioned in the New Testament and that only one of those is restricted to certain men and it's a form of teaching. This teaching is the preserving and the passing on of the sayings and actions of Jesus and the apostles' commentary on them which the apostles gave to all the churches that they founded. So Paul would go to church and say, I've told you the lot. I've told you all of it. Here's what Jesus said and did. Here's what that means. These were the essential messages and truths of Christianity. And a teacher was responsible for ensuring that the church stayed faithful to what it had been told. Now, eventually, these oral records were written down and recognized as the New Testament. And so, you might say, well, we've got the New Testament now. Does that mean we still need this role of teacher? We all know what the New Testament is. We'd say, we may all know what the New Testament is, but do we still fully understand what it means? We think this role continues in that every church has to work out what is interpreted and taught and practiced as divinely revealed truth and passed on as such to the next generation. That is always an issue for the church. And so we think that this preserving and passing on role fits with the definition of eldership, the calling to guard and protect the church, and the emphasis in the New Testament on elders being able to teach. They are to set the doctrinal agenda for the church. That is what's going on right now. And that's what's going on when we write our membership course, when we produce documents about baptism and the key things that we believe and those kind of things. That's an eldership role to say, this is what we believe God has said to us through the New Testament. 
Naturally, as is happening right now, the Sunday sermon is an important context for ensuring that this kind of teaching is given. But it's actually not the only context. Like I've said, we're producing documents, we have conversations, we do other teaching and training at other times. Nor does a sermon have to be teaching in this way. So you will have noticed my style today has been different to what it is at other times. There's other times where it's more of an exhortation style of saying, look, God says this, so this is what we need to do. Exhortation brings challenge and encouragement or even prophecy, which brings revelation from God's word and a sense of this is what God is saying to us right now. Both of those will come from God's words, but they aren't necessarily defining it in the way that we are this morning. And so this being the case, elders can invite anyone who's gifted, female or male, to speak on a Sunday. Elders will continue to do the majority of the preaching and will always have the final say on what is taught and how it's taught, because that is part of our doctrine, how we live together. And this is what we mean by the elders having governmental authority in their preaching and their leading. And this is why we try to ensure that there's always at least one elder at every Sunday meeting serving the church with loving oversight. So we've zoomed all the way out to have a sense of a biblical perspective on this. Now we're going to go all the way back to 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Paul talks about Adam being made before Eve. Now, why does that matter? Well, in the Bible, the firstborn child had certain rights and responsibilities. They didn't simply get the biggest inheritance to do with as they liked. They were responsible for the rest of the family. That was part of their job, was to care for those who who they were related to, their siblings and other dependents. And so Paul is saying that Adam was responsible for the care and protection of Eve, just as every husband is responsible for the care and protection of his wife, and every elder and eldership team is meant to care for and protect their church. Then he goes on to talk about how it was Eve who was deceived and not Adam. Now, he can't be saying that women are more gullible than men, can he? No, he can't. He knows that the Bible records far more men than women fooling themselves and being fooled. He knows that the false teachers in Ephesus are all men. He wouldn't have been surprised to see airport shops convincing both men and women to spend their money on things they don't need. Moreover, if Paul had thought that women were more gullible than men, he wouldn't have allowed them to do all the things that he does allow them to do, all the things that he does want them to do, all the encouragement and teaching and serving and leading that he wants them to do. He would say, they can't do anything. because, you just... But he doesn't say that. So what is going on? In Genesis 3, when God knows that Eve has been deceived and that she and Adam have eaten the forbidden fruit, who does God go to to talk to about that? He goes to Adam. He says to Adam, what have you done? Well, Adam says, well, it wasn't me. It was her. And she says, it wasn't really me either. It was the snake. And the snake just kind of hisses and, you know. (laughs) Adam tries to say, it wasn't me. But when Paul talks about this in Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, both times he says the sin was Adam's. 
Why? Because Adam represented his family and was responsible for his family. When you actually look at Genesis 3, you realize that Adam was standing there the whole time. He was right next to Eve when the serpent tempted her, and he did nothing about it. And this is Paul's fear for what might happen at Ephesus. He's saying to Timothy, this could be Eden all over again. False teachers are whispering lies into the ears of some of the women, and they are becoming convinced by this and starting to act on it, and the elders aren't doing anything about it. Don't let this happen, Paul commands Timothy. Teach what is right, what I gave to you as God's revelation, and get the elders to do the same. Don't let them be like Adam and fail in their responsibility. And finally, we get to the phrase, she will be saved through childbearing. What does this mean? It cannot mean that having children makes you a Christian. Obviously, that excludes all the guys, and it will exclude many women as well. And in this very same chapter... Paul has already said it's only God who saves us and that this happens through Jesus Christ alone. So what is he thinking about? I think his mind is still in Genesis 3. There's a word in the Greek that's missing in most of our English translations because scholars aren't sure if it needs to be there or not. But if it is there, it changes the phrase so that Paul says, she will be saved through the childbearing. And so suddenly, this isn't about having any child, but about one child. As the terrible consequences of their sin were laid before Adam and Eve, God made Eve a promise. You brought this on yourself, he said to her, and your husband didn't help you. But through you, I will bring hope to the world. He says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then it says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Generation upon generation upon generation will come from you, Eve, and eventually the one who made you will be born through your descendant, Mary. Even though he made you, he will come from your line. You are the mother of all living, and he will not fail. He won't abandon you like Adam did, nor will he humiliate or abuse you. He will care for and protect you and all your sons and all your daughters. He will crush the serpent's head, and he will defeat sin and death that came into the world through you. All women will find their hope in him, and all men too. He will save all of them who believe in him from their sins, and he will reconcile them to each other, just as they were always meant to be. And this is the day in which we live. Now we know the fullness of this has not yet fully come, but it has begun. And it's on its way. And churches and Christian marriages should show that. We can celebrate the differences between men and women because we're secure in our shared identity as children of God, adopted through Jesus. We can celebrate what maleness and femaleness teaches us about God. 
it takes a lot of getting used to because the winds are blowing all around us. And so we need to continually have grace for each other. We need to bear with one another when we get this wrong. But with God, all things are possible, including this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's pray. Lord, we've, we've looked at a lot of things today and there's a lot more that can be said about all of them. I want to thank you that you've given us your word that we might know who we are and how to live with each other. We want to thank you. You've given us your spirit who fills each one of us and brings us closer to you and to each other. And Lord, I want to thank you that you made us male and female. You didn't have to, but you wanted to. And you have good plans for that. Help us, please help us, to see this, to comprehend it, and to show it. Lord, in a world that either wants to exploit differences or erase them, help us to show how glorious they can be. I pray for those here who have been hurt, who have carried difficulty even through hearing this message today where they've been treated wrongly on account of their gender. Lord, would you give grace? Would you please just pour out your love? Lord, help us to continue to be a church who are faithful to your word. 